This is Aging Matters, care and comfort that surrounds you on FM 98.5 AM 680 WPTF. Joined by Mary Lucas from Transitions Life Care. Here's your host, Jason Kong. Welcome to Aging Matters, care and comfort that surrounds you, a service of Transitions Life Care. It's your life, your care on FM 98.5 AM 680 WPTF News Talk Traffic. Good afternoon to you. Jason Kong here with... Mary Lucas, representing Transitions Life Care. Mary, how are you doing? I'm doing well. I, my puppy got adopted. Oh, very. So, how long did you have the puppy? I've had him. Well, he's still with me, so okay. we've got a couple. We've got about a week more, but his, he's moving to Washington D.C., which is so exciting. Oh, um, God. capital city dog! Just just <laughs> in time for election season. That's exactly. Uh, that's wonderful. And of course, you foster puppies and yes. all dogs of all ages. Uh, you're. you're got a heart of gold, Mary. So <laughs> um, I'm glad to hear that this puppy found a new home. Yes, he's very excited. <laughs> well, we are excited for our guest on the show today, and we're going to be having a conversation about caregiving, and we're going to learn about a particular person's journey, and that person is Julia Freifeld. Julia is an author and artist, and we're going to be talking a lot about her story and her upcoming book. Julia, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. Thank you. Thank you for coming on the show and being willing to talk about your journey. Maybe let's start off right at the beginning. Where, how did you become a caregiver and what was your caregiving journey about? And I, I know you have a book coming out soon. So start us there and tell us a little bit about the title of your book and where did that come from? Okay. Well, I'll start with the title. Uh, well, maybe I'll go back and start with my husband was diagnosed with a rare neurodegenerative disease called multiple system atrophy in 2011, but he had symptoms for about six, seven years before that, and I became his full-time caregiver. It's a rare disease. It's an orphan disease because it is like three in 100,000 people, and so if there was, uh, it's terminal, it's, it is, um, there's no remission and there's no cure at this time. So I quickly went into my journal writing mode and that journal eventually became my book. And the title, the title comes from a conversation Mark and I had with a hospice chaplain. Mm. Mark was a hospice, Mark was a hospice patient for 16 months. And he was given a team that visited our home, our family, uh, twice a week. It was a nurse, the chaplain, and a social worker. So during one of those visits with the chaplain, Mark started talking about his funeral mm-hmm. arrangements. And I asked Mark whether he was scared of anything. He answered in his way, matter of fact, and trying for that bit of humor that we always were trying to reach for. When I pass, I won't know. I'll be in a casket, she said. Mm-hmm. But he continued, and he said he tried not to think about what he'd miss in the future. That made him too sad. Hmm. Then the chaplain looked at me, and she said to me, Julia, what are you scared of? And I cried. I said, I'm scared when Mark won't be here. I know I'll be strong. I know life goes on, but it's an awful thing to figure out how to be okay. Mark, at that moment, Mark looked into my eyes and he said, we're in each other's bones. Oh. 
I did not know that those words would become the book title. It was years later that I realized how perfect those words were. Wow. You've got me in tears over here. That's, that is um, a really special moment, and I, I can imagine a very difficult one for you all. Um, what was the biggest lesson you learned? You had quite a long caregiving journey. What is the biggest lesson you learned from everything that you went through? <laughs> wow. That's a hard question um, because I learned dozens of lessons. I was on, I used to say, a constant learning curve, one after another. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's a few here I'll uh, uh, mention, if you don't mind. Absolutely. Um, at, after Mark's diagnosis, I became his full-time caregiver. And pretty quickly, I learned the future will t- have to take care of itself because my goal was to remain in the present. Mm-hmm. And that was, a re- that was a really new way of thinking for both of us. My, mar- uh, my husband was a businessman. He always had to have his eye on the future. And raising children and being a busy family, you're always thinking about what you have to do next. But caring for a spouse with a terminal illness handed me two jobs. One was taking care of Mark. The other, this is the big one, finding my separate self. Mm. Who, who am I without, without Mark? without a husband, without a father for my children. I had to reach out for support from family, friends, the hospice team. I was pushed to handle much more than I thought I was capable of handling because I always viewed myself as independent, totally self-sufficient in any situation. But this, this, I couldn't, this situation, I could not figure out by myself. Hmm. So big, another big learning curve, another big learning curve was changing my thinking from hoping for a cure, which we both did for years, to accepting the fact that Mark's disease had no cure. Mm-hmm. To, uh, on, the, on the last note, I'd say, but my family, so I have three children, two of them at that time had partners. My mother-in-law was living nearby. She was part of this journey too. And so I think what we all had to learn I wrote in my book, and I'll read this part from my book. By the fall of 2013, we were days away from our first grandchild being born. While at the same time, Mark was moving every day closer to death. Mm. Our family was learning the hard way too, as Frances Weller wrote, carry grief in one hand and gratitude in the other. Wow. Wow, I, that is, um, you know, a very pivotal pivotal moment in your life from multiple angles: being a parent, being um, a daughter, being a spouse of uh, someone with a terminal illness. It must have been very difficult. You mentioned your journaling routine. Is that something you've always done? I've I've just started journaling, so that's intriguing to me. Um, what was your journaling routine throughout this time, and uh, have you always kept a journal? Well, I began writing in a diary when I was around 14. And in those days, actually, it was called diaries, not journals. Mm-hmm. I, continue, I, I continued on and off throughout college, but then stopped altogether. Um, but pretty soon... After Mark's symptoms began around 2006, I found myself reaching for a pen and starting to write in a composition notebook. 
and I wrote frequently during his illness. I'd write day or night, whenever I could scoot away from caregiving. And I'd write down my dreams. Some of those dreams were nightmares. And I started composing poems. It was where, in a journal, as you may now know, it's where you unload all your feelings. And you don't worry about grammar. I didn't. Punctuation. I could write and write and write. I find, I find it very freeing. And it was a release of all those pent-up emotions. But I didn't want to share with Mark, necessarily. It was my place to express my private thoughts. And on the topic of journals, I was not planning on turning my journals into my memoir. That came years later. And that process, actually, turning my journals into a book, took 12 years. Wow. <laughs> FYI. <laughs> Julia, what, what was the, I mean, you didn't plan to do this book, but what was it like going back through those journal entries for the first time? Well, you know, it was really interesting to do that because, um, like I said, those journals, I didn't know what I was going to do with them. I thought I might burn them, actually. I thought, mm -hmm. no one's going to read this. This is way too personal, way too sad. Um, it's for the moment, journaling can sometimes just be for that moment. You just need to unload somewhere, and you don't want to unload on a person. So you, your journal takes the beating. Um, and but when I decided to turn this into a book, into a memoir, that maybe I have something here someone else could learn from, I had to revisit those painful times. And it was okay. It was okay. Sad. But it was okay. And so I found it. Well, the process, actually, I'd write. I put down the book for about a year. That's why it took 12 years. I would take time off spend a few months writing, stop again. Pick up, stop. It was during COVID in 2020, live by myself, I'm alone. That book is there on my computer. I have no reason not to continue and finish. So I am a finisher. I don't like to leave things half done. So I thought, this is my time. This is the blessing in this, you know, <laughs> COVID time. I could finish a book. And I did. Yeah, that's that's tremendous. And I, I know it had to have been difficult. And luckily, you had that time in circumstances that we, we didn't exactly foresee and certainly didn't want. But uh, I'm glad you were able to accomplish this. We've got more questions for Julia Freifeld. She's the author of In Each Other's Bones, and she's also an artist as well. And we're going to continue our conversation with her right after this. You're listening to Aging Matters, care and comfort that surrounds you, a service of Transitions Life Care. It's your life, your care on FM 98.5 AM 680 WPTF News Talk Traffic. This is Aging Matters, care and comfort that surrounds you on FM 98.5 AM 680 WPTF with your hosts, Mary Lucas and Jason Kong. Welcome back to Aging Matters, care and comfort that surrounds you, a service of Transitions Life Care. It's your life, your care on FM 98.5 AM 680 WPTF News Talk traffic. If you want to learn more about Transitions Life Care, all the resources available there, be sure to go to transitionslifecare.org. Transitionslifecare.org. I'm Jason Kong here with Mary Lucas. Our guest on the line is Julia Freifeld. Julia is an artist and also author of the book In Each Other's Bones. It is a memoir of her caregiving journey with her husband who 
was diagnosed with a terminal illness and she kept a journal of uh, everything that was going on and her feelings and we're, we're just diving back into that now, Mary. Yes, absolutely. I, I want to go back to your relationship with Mark and the, and the things that happened throughout his illness. Julia, talk to us a little bit about how your relationship changed over the course of his terminal illness and everything that you all were going through. Okay. As, as Mark's health declined, of course, our relationship changed. Intimacy was different, and our future was precarious. Mm-hmm. I wanted This is where the push-pull was. I wanted to remain his wife and not solely his nurse. We were hand-in-hand. Hand, we were gentle. And early on in my journal, I wrote this. We would be kind. We would laugh. I wanted Mark and me to lift each other up and remain a light for the other. Mm. The grieving process is what altered our relationship. I learned when someone dies suddenly, the grief work happens after their death. It is the opposite when someone is sick over a long period of time. And Mark was ill over 10 years. So mm. I, this was such a, a new thing. I began grieving Mark while he was alive mm. because there were these losses each day with the type of neurodegenerative disease Mark had. Over time, he lost, gradually, he lost his ability to walk, to swallow, and talk. About a year before Mark passed, I wrote in my journal, I had to uncouple, though nothing could break my heart more. I was pulling away and preparing for a life without Mark. I had to let go of feeling safe and protected, being touched, having conversations, and sharing experiences both outside and inside our home. Once Mark was no longer able to eat solid foods, I ate my meals alone in the kitchen before joining him for the evening. I felt the space between us enlarge and an emptiness took over. Mm. That is that is really um, powerful. I, Ten years is a long journey um, to slowly watch a decline and, and watch somebody through this illness. So I can't imagine all of the feelings that you were feeling as you slowly, um, as things were changing over that time period. I want to kind of transition now a little bit to after Mark's passing. Um, you've been journaling. You had been grieving for quite a while. At what point did you realize that you were ready to move on And um, after his passing and, and the grieving period that you had, which was so long over this time period of his illness? And have you begin dating or anything else since then? <laughs> Let's get personal. <laughs> okay. Well, this is nice to talk about. Well, first, first, this is a good place to say that by writing and completing my book, it allowed me to manage my life better. Mm. It is how I became who I am now. I was able to let go of that enormous pain of loss and make room for a new start, a new life, and for love to enter. So a year after Mark passed away, I moved into my new home because I wanted a new start, and I knew a new home would kind of symbolize that. Mm -hmm. I moved in, and I noticed I was lonely. The epilogue in my book 
is the funny and poignant story of my online dating experiences. <laughs> and I date, <laughs> it, I, I mean, just, my gosh, that's all I can tell you. Um, I, <laughs> I dated, I, I dated actually quite a bit, and that story, um, in March of 2021, so about 20 months ago, I met my current boyfriend. He, I have to say, shout out to him. He is wonderful, and he is what I tell him all the time. He is my now. Oh, that is really special. And I can't, I, I can imagine what an amazing support he is for you and understanding everything that you've been through and, um, and where you are now. It, it you know, he's a, a widower, mm-hmm. and um, so ex- ex- that's exactly true because he and I can share our caregiving stories. Mm-hmm. His wife was sick for 10 years. Um, we share that as part of a bonding, actually, I think that goes on. And we can talk about our spouses. We love them. We, they're part of our lives at times. And that's all, all good. Oh, that's very special. So mm-hmm. you talked a little bit about poems and writing poems. How is poem writing different for you from a journal entry and how you are expressing um, all, everything that you were feeling? So, I, yeah, I bet journal writing is different for each person that writes in a journal. Mm-hmm. My writing style for a journal is fast and stream of consciousness. Like I said, I don't stop and correct punctuation or care about the grammar. It's about getting the emotions out and on paper. So my journals, the one thing that made it hard to to transfer over to a book form is that journals are repetitive. It's a bunch of run-on sentences, totally (laughs) out of sequence. I'd write, it's all over the place. Writing a poem is like writing a dream. Mm. It's metaphor, symbolism fluidity, colors, snapshot imagery. One poem in my book is called Moonlight. It was fun to write because it actually originally was a two-page chapter. I kept editing and editing that chapter until I realized, oh, it's a poem. And and I I don't think I have a favorite poem. I like all my poems that are in the book. Some are sad and some are thoughtful. There are seven poems in my book. And they just express different moments, either from my caregiving journey or after Mark's passing. That's awesome. Do you have a favorite poem that you'd like to share? I could. I could. I thought about that might come up. And I had I, two I thought about. Um, I, might, I might read. Let me find it. It's, I might read Moonlight because I just mentioned it, actually. And so... That way you can think it's boy, this is like a two-page chapter. <laughs> but now it's about a 15-line poem. And this is a poem, oh yeah, um, this is after Mark passed away. About six months later, I was alone in the middle of the night, and I woke up and started writing. And this is what became a poem. It's called Moonlight. Awakened by moonlight through my window, I stepped out of bed and opened the shutters. The sky is black, the full moon luminous, a high beam glaring, blaring white. I stare at the moon and think of Mark. The moon begins to grow like a dream amid dancing stars. 
its whiteness cold against the dark sky. I watch the moon sink into tall trees. Soon it's gone, erased by early sunlight. The sun is warm and demanding, erasing my reverie. Wow, that is really powerful. One more question for you, and you mentioned your children briefly in their part of this journey. How do your children feel about being in your book? Okay, well, um, here in their own words are their answers. (laughs) (laughs) David David is my youngest. He's 31, married. He lives in Seattle with his wife, Elena. And these are his words. I loved reading my mom's book. It's beautiful and heartbreaking. Her fearless and poetic writing style glides from memories to dreams that are both difficult and soothing. Her book reflects my dad's humor, courage, and grace. It also makes clear how much he loved us and how little he wanted to leave his life. Her book shows how balanced and inspiring their marriage was. I miss being around their marriage. Reading my name in her book was as surreal as it was grounding. It brought me right back to those distant times. Above all, I'm proud of my mom's dedication and courage to share her story. My mom has always lived her life with courage, strength, love, and joy. I'm proud to be her son. Um, And then my next, my son Jeremy lives in Cary, North Carolina, with his wife Jen and two children. And he wrote... Often, a parent controls how much is revealed to the children, and understandably so. So it's a unique gift to read my mom's book. In some respects, it feels like I got a hold of her personal journal, beautifully written and honest journal, that gives me a deeper understanding of my mom's experience with my dad's illness, and in turn, an an even deeper level of appreciation for her as a person, not only because of the substance of the book, but also because of the act itself of writing and promoting the book and her commitment to sharing her story. It unquestionably requires courage, and I know my dad would be incredibly proud of her, as as am I. And then last, my daughter Emily. She lives in Raleigh with her husband James and two children. My mom's book is a beautiful telling of a chapter in our family's history. She is the main character, and she shares the story of her resilience, courage, and creativity. But she also includes my voice, my brother's voices, my husband, sister-in-law, the aides, and other family members. By incorporating all those voices, she also shares how grief and illness affect a whole family how it takes a village to lift each other up and continue living during our hardest moments. I love that we have this book for me and my siblings and our kids. Yeah, that's that's incredible, Julia. And, you know, the, the two <laughs> words from your children that really stand out to me are, are beautiful and fearless uh, from what mm-hmm. you just read. I, I, I think that's the perfect way to describe uh, our conversation with you today and, and this wonderful book, In Each Other's Bones. Julia, how can folks get a hold of this book? Well, okay, a couple ways. It's on Amazon, and I just have to say it's the number one 
bestseller on Amazon in (laughs) in three categories. Wow, that's incredible! I just had I just had to say it's only been out a couple weeks, and um, I so you can get it on Amazon, or you know if you live where there's an independent bookstore, like in Raleigh, we have Quellridge Books. If you're in Durham, you have The Regulator. They can order the books for you. Mm -hmm. And it's always nice to support our local independent bookstores. And third thing I want to mention, I'm having a book reading, my first ever book reading at Quellridge Books, November 12th at 2 p.m. Wow, that's awesome. Wonderful. Well, yes. Julia, this is a, a wonderful, wonderful thing, and uh, congratulations to you on your success. The book is In Each Other's Bones. She is Julia Freifeld. She's the author and also an artist. If you if you do get the book, look at the cover. It's uh, uh, the, the artwork on there is done by Julia as well, so you can tell that she's super talented. Julia, thank you so much for coming on the show today and for being so open and candid with us. We really appreciate it. My total pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. Oh, well, it's our pleasure as well. And again, congratulations. And we hope that uh, it's a continued success for you. We got to take a quick break, but we'll be back with more. Don't go anywhere. You're listening to Aging Matters, care and comfort that surrounds you, a service of Transitions Life Care. It's your life, your care on FM 98.5 AM 680 WPTF News Talk Traffic. This is Aging Matters, care and comfort that surrounds you on FM 98.5 AM 680 WPTF. 60 minutes devoted to giving you all the information you need when caring for a loved one with Mary Lucas and Jason Kong. If you have questions for the show, you can email agingmatters at transitionslifecare.org. You're listening to Aging Matters, care and comfort that surrounds you, a service of Transitions Life Care. It's your life, your care on FM 98.5 AM 680 WPTF News Talk Traffic. Good afternoon to you. Thank you so much for joining us at a different time on a Sunday afternoon. Usually we do these this show Saturday at 4, but because of football, uh, this week and next week we'll be on at a special time. And uh, thank you so much for joining us today. We're now going to shift focus a little bit here. And, you know, one of the biggest fears that we often hear about and discuss on the show is the fear of death and being in pain. And well, of, of course, many of us would fear those things, but we're going to have a discussion on total pain and what that is. And to have that discussion, we're pleased to welcome in one of our own, and that is Myla Mason. Myla is an educator and nurse with Transitions Life Care. Myla, thank you so much for joining us today. Well, thank you for having me. This is such a great topic, and it's something that we hear, as Jason mentioned. You know, my grandfather went right before he went on hospice, was talking to a, our, our family like, I don't want to ever go to the hospital again. I don't want to be a pain. I just want to be comfortable in my home. And and we hear that over and over again, but I don't think we fully understand the concept of pain. And so, Milo, I'm really excited about this conversation today. So maybe we start out with the basics. Can you tell us briefly how you, as a hospice professional, a nurse, an educator, how do you help patients and families deal with their fear of dying painfully? Well, I I first think it's important for people to understand that uh, pain is very subjective to the person. Um, I might feel or perceive um, pain, physical pain, 
um, very differently than you, Mary, um, even if it's the exact same, um, you know, etiology, the same thing causing pain. Um, so I think it's very important that we keep that in mind, that it's subjective to the person. Mm-hmm. Um, and I also think that we need to keep in mind that physical pain is only one element of pain. Um, mm. So in, in talking with our patients and their families, um, we need to kind of um, piece out whether it's physical or one of these other elements that we consider in the total pain concept being social, psychological, um, or spiritual pain. And so I think we can talk about that a little bit more, but Mm -hmm. for the physical pain, we um, ask the patient, you know, what is it that they feel comfortable with? You know, so often we use that zero to 10 scale, Mm -hmm. um, and that may or may not be something um, that a patient really understands, but um, we try to get them to tell us what their level of comfort is, where they feel like they can enjoy their day, so to speak, you know, go about their life um, and have a quality of life. So we start with that. We start with goals. What are your goals? And um, and then we work from there to figure out if it's medication or something else that might help them to reach their goals. It's very helpful. If you're already in physical pain while we're, while we're on this topic in physical pain and thinking mm-hmm. about the total pain concept, which you've briefly mentioned, can physical pain manifest into other kinds of pain? And can you dive into a little bit more about what is total pain and do the, all the elements feed into other elements and, and kind of work together to create this total pain concept? Absolutely. Um, so the total pain concept, which was, um, coined, if you will, by Dame Cicely Saunders, who is the um, founder of the modern day hospice, um, an amazing woman. Um, and she she actually tell, told, tells, excuse me, a great story about a patient that she had. And this really does um, paint the picture um, that her patient was having physical pain in her legs. And then when she was talking to Dame Saunders, she said, but now it seems that all of me is wrong. Um, She said, I could have cried for the medications, but I knew that I mustn't. And the world seemed to be against me and nobody understood. And she went on to say that her husband and son were wonderful, but they were having to stay out of work and they were losing money. Um, and then she said, but it, it feels uh, wonderful to feel safe again. So in that little bit of conversation with Dame Saunders, she came out with physical pain, her back and her legs. She talked about social pain of, of losing money Um, because there are social implications of that, right? Mm -hmm. And then she talked about um, emotional pain of people not understanding her or feeling shut away like she couldn't ask for the medicine. And then what Dame Saunders perceived as spiritual pain um, when the patient said, "It, 
it's wonderful to feel safe again. And so that safety and security being her um, spiritual side. And, and it really does, they all play in together. So if you are in a, a big social struggle, you, you, you are sick and you've lost um, the ability to work and you don't have an income anymore, it can absolutely manifest itself in other ways and make your physical pain worse and vice versa. If your physical pain is just out of control, the rest of you just is probably a mess as well. That couldn't be further from the truth. And so can you talk to us more about the role of the hospice team in addressing the total pain of, of someone? Well, when you think about a nurse and a doctor, you oftentimes think about that we focus on that physical pain and we're, we're trying to give medications, right, to alleviate that physical pain. Um, and that is, you know, what we've been trained to do is, is to, to work um, with medications or treatments of other kinds to relieve the suffering of people um, through, those, through those modalities. Mm-hmm. But we're not trained um, in social work or in the spiritual care side of things. And while we, I'm sure, have some element of that, because as a nurse, I mean, I feel like I'm a pretty compassionate person and and what have you, but that's not my forte. So the team that also consists of a social worker, um, a spiritual care person, and even volunteers um, who, and, and CNAs, quite frankly, who all can contribute to the well-being of that patient and their families. Mm. That's very helpful. I, I want to, you just mentioned the family side of it as well. Uh, mm-hmm. how, do, how does a caregiver or a family member recognize some of these different kinds of pain? It's easy to be like, oh, I'm in pain, and you recognize that. That's, that's one thing. But how, what signals should you be looking for? You know, not every patient or your loved one will come out and just say, I'm, I'm worried about my social pain. Um, you know, that what, what can you be looking for as a caregiver to recognize these kinds of pain? Well, I think it's important for all of us to listen to what the patient is saying, because as you said, they're not going to come straight out and say, I'm worried about my social pain, but they might, um, just in conversation, be saying things that could lead us to know that that's what's bothering them. You know, one of the things, so when my dad was um, in his last days, one of the things he said to me was he didn't want to be a burden and he didn't know if he was good enough to go to heaven. And to Mm -hmm. me, those are those are two very important statements. Um, you know, the, the, I don't want to be a burden is kind of along the psychological or emotional social side of things, you know, and then the, the I'm not sure if I'm good enough to go to heaven is definitely along the spiritual side of things. So, um, you know, sometimes it's, it, it can be 
alleviated or or at least lessened those that suffering that a person is having if if they have a conversation with somebody Mm -hmm. um and suffering and pain aren't the same so Mm -hmm. i think that it's important for us to understand that as well that's good advice we're speaking with Myla Mason. Myla is an educator and nurse with Transitions Life Care, and we're discussing the concept of total pain, and we're going to continue our conversation with Myla right after this. Don't go anywhere. You're listening to Aging Matters, care and comfort that surrounds you, a service of Transitions Life Care. It's your life, your care on FM 98.5 AM 680 WPTF News Talk Traffic. This is Aging Matters, care and comfort that surrounds you on FM 98.5 AM 680 WPTF. Joined by Mary Lucas from Transitions Life Care. Here's your host, Jason Kong. This is Aging Matters, care and comfort that surrounds you, a service of Transitions Life Care. It's your life, your care on FM 98.5 AM 680 WPTF. News, talk, traffic. Good afternoon to you. If you want to learn more about Transitions Life Care, be sure to head on over to transitionslifecare.org. Transitionslifecare.org. So many resources available for you online. Also, information about job openings. If you're interested in pursuing a career opportunity with Transitions Life Care, be sure to go to transitionslifecare.org. I'm Jason Kong here with Mary Lucas. Our guest on the line is Myla Mason, and Myla is an educator and nurse with Transitions Life Care, and we're discussing the concept of total pain. And Mary, before the break, we were talking about the concepts of pain and suffering. We often hear these two lumped together, so let's let's dive into that a little bit. Yeah, Myla, can you talk to us about the differences between pain and suffering? Like Jason said, always lumped together, but the more you talk about them, the more I think that they are a little bit different. And you are correct. Um, So they are related, but not necessarily the same. So pain typically would be a physical or emotional pain. And there's typically a physiologic basis behind it. You know, you don't have... um, abdominal pain necessarily unless there's something going on in your belly that makes you have that physical pain Um, suffering on the other hand is more about um, the meaning that we place on that physical or emotional pain that we're experiencing so for instance somebody might say to themselves this physical pain is because I'm not a good person. You know, I've done something wrong in my life, so now I'm being punished. That's when the suffering comes in. Um, And people can really be drowning in that suffering, thinking that, you know, they've done something wrong, and so all of these bad things are happening to them. It's more prevalent, I would say, when you talk, when you think about a, a younger person, a person who we would would say, oh, my gosh, they're too young to, to die or to have this, you know, terminal illness. And and sometimes, you know, that where that suffering really um, ramps up, if you will. 
Interesting. Uh, you know, I never knew those differences. It's very helpful. I think as a caregiver as well, it's very helpful for me to think about. And maybe we can dive in a little bit more there. The hospice team is a great resource, and you've talked about some things we can do for the patient, but they can also be a resource for the other family members and loved ones as well. And coming from the caregiver perspective, I can imagine the sense of helplessness that may you know, and caring for their loved one that may be experiencing pain and they're seeing it or hearing it or or kind of noticing it, it may compel them to visit less frequently, for example. Are there ways that the hospice team can be a better resource for the family members and caregivers as well? Oh, absolutely. Um, And I think it's important to know um, for the listeners out there that the patient isn't the only person. When we when we um, engage with a terminally ill person, we look at the family unit as the, the patient, if you will. So yes, there is a, a person who is the terminally ill person, but anybody that they consider their family unit is also who we want to care for. So, um, you know, sometimes our team works actually more with the family than with the, the patient um, who's terminally ill. Um, you know, sometimes our, our terminally ill patients might have dementia and not even perceive that we're even there for them, but we are there for their family members as well. And so as a nurse, one of my main roles is to help guide the family and patient through the physical changes that are going to likely happen as they um, decline. And then our social workers and our spiritual care chaplains and um, even our volunteers and our CNAs are there to provide different kinds of support. So um, conversational support, spiritual support, um, helping family members to get um maybe advanced directives in order because maybe that wasn't done previously and now they're feeling stress over needing that to be done. And so we help them through all of those things and we're there to listen to them um, and and work through those distressing elements or, or suffering that they might be having. And the, the earlier we can start that relationship, the better. So if if we don't get a patient on service until their final days or hours, then we can't really do the best job for that patient and their family. Um, mm. Let's dive in a little. Yeah, let's dive in a little bit deeper there. You know, this is a very holistic approach to care, it sounds like, and the team, the whole team participating in the care for both the patient and the family. So if you're referring very late in this pain cycle, it sounds like it could be a crisis. Can you talk to us about a little bit more about the importance of an earlier referral to hospice if you're starting to notice these things? Absolutely. Um, You know, the guidelines say that a person um, who re- who a doctor feels reasonably has six months or less to live um, is eligible for hospice. That's kind of the broad picture. And if we can engage in the services with those um, folks at that point, 
then we have, let's say, six months to help that family understand the changes that are going to occur, help them to get their um, affairs or, or paperwork, if you will, in order for, for you know, um, their advanced directives or even help them. You know, oftentimes we're asked about funerals you know, to help them with funeral arrangements or anything else like that. So the sooner we can get in there and start building that relationship with them, um, the better. Because people don't always want to open up to you on day one. Sometimes it takes several meetings mm -hmm. with a patient or their families before they feel comfortable with the team to start being more open about their feelings. And if we can if we can get in there with them earlier, then then that gives them a chance to work through some some emotional or or even physical things that might be going on with them. Um, and while we can't fix necessarily years worth of family problems, it's it's been a beautiful thing for me to be able to see families come together um, and and even sometimes reconcile at end of life. Um, and that's another beautiful gift if if we're able to start that conversation early. Um, then sometimes people can can reach a point of uh, emotional, spiritual, social, and physical um, comfort before they before they pass away or before their loved one passes away. Those are all really great points. It's something that I'm seeing with my grandfather, who's now on services. You know, I'm a huge advocate for hospice, so it's it's something that um, you know was very important to me. That as soon as we realized he could benefit from some of those services, that we put him on. And now I'm seeing the whole team interact with him. You know, he's really built a bond with his aide and his nurse, and um, he's being able. You know, he's taking. They're taking such good care of him holistically, and um, we're being able to do things like we've. Uh, we have a veteran ceremony coming up for him and um, a, a team is coming out and my family is invited and we're all going to, he, he's going to do the pinning and have a little celebration um, for his service. And I think that those are really special things and benefits of hospice um, and the volunteers that are able to come out and, and spend time with them. And I, his quality of life has gotten so much better since we've been on awesome. hospice. And he really is, because we were able to bring him on so much sooner, really is able to benefit from all these services. And I think those were all really good points that you have. And, and Mary just, you know, I can't explain the phenomenon behind it, but sometimes people actually live longer mm -hmm. once they go on to hospice services. Um, and it's not, I would say it's not because we're giving medications that help them to live longer or we're doing anything extraordinary. But I think when a person and when their family um, feel like they are in a good place, um, a safe place and when they um, sometimes we do actually withdraw medications um, but it, it there's something that somehow works together <laughs> and people have actually lived longer on hospice services than than the doctors would have expected so there's something to that as well definitely 
Yeah. Thank you so much, Myla, for coming on the show with us and explaining this topic to us. It was a really fascinating discussion with Myla Mason, who's the educator and nurse at Transitions Life Care. Thank you so much for your time today. We really appreciate you coming on the show. And thank you for having me. Uh, It was our pleasure. Well, we are just about out of time for today. Please don't forget, head on over to Transitions Life Care org to learn more about Transitions Life Care. And if you want to catch up on past episodes of Aging Matters, you can go to WPTF.com and click on the podcast button there. And there you can find the Aging Matters section in all episodes of this show. On behalf of Mary Lucas, I'm Jason Kong, thanking you so much for listening to Aging Matters, care and comfort that surrounds you, a service of Transitions Life Care. It's your life, your care on FM 98.5 AM 680 WPTF News Talk Traffic. You've been listening to Aging Matters, care and comfort that surrounds you on FM 98.5 AM 680 WPTF. For more information, log on to transitionslifecare.org.